you go to a running shoe store to get a new pair of shoes, they're going to throw you on a treadmill or in some other way identify how much you pronate and then give you something to correct that because pronation is a horrible thing that needs to be corrected. Or is it? Well, we're going to be talking about that and many other things on today's episode of The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body. Starting feet first, you know, those things are your foundation. And we break down the propaganda, the mythology, and sometimes the flat out lies you've been told about what it takes to run or walk or hike or play or do CrossFit or yoga or whatever it is you like to do. And to do that enjoyably, efficiently, effectively that I say enjoyably don't answer trick question i know i did because look if you're not having fun you won't keep it up so do something different till you are i'm steven sashin from zeroshoes.com your host of the movement movement podcast and we call it that because we're creating a movement we include you i'll tell you how in a second about natural movement letting your body do what it's made to do and the part that involves you is really simple go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com you don't need to do anything to join um there's no secret handshake there's no fee there's no nothing just that's where the previous episodes are that's where you can find out all the places you can engage with us download it from all your favorite places where you get podcasts find out how you can interact with us on social media on youtube and facebook at instagram etc etc uh and you know what to do when you go there like and share and give us a thumbs up on the places you can give us a thumbs up and hit the bell icon on youtube in short if you want to be part of the tribe please subscribe because it's what you share that's uh, making this whole thing grow and we've been excited to see that happen all right let us jump in rick um, tell people who you are and what you're doing here uh, my name is rick merriam i'm a licensed massage therapist and i have a background in uh, biomechanics and my office is in dallas texas so tell me about your biomechanics background, because most massage therapists, um, they get into massage therapy by going to massage therapy school and don't necessarily have the biomechanics part. So how did that happen and how does that inform what you do? Well, originally started, I had an injury to my back, like, you know, just from compensation is what I think, just looking back on it. So I had an injury to my back, like right after high school, I think it was due to compensation. I'd cracked my tailbone earlier on just racing BMX bikes and yeah, racing BMX bikes. It was, it was not racing BMX bikes, but I was at camp racing BMX bikes, cracked my tailbone and then ended up running in high school and had injury after injury. Eventually I had an injury to the disc. Uh, this is now after high school. So I go from playing ultimate Frisbee running anything pretty much I wanted to do to not, to not doing anything. Now, my parents were into alternative medicine, so I started working with a chiropractor. At that time, I didn't really understand chiropractic like I do now. A friend of mine was going to massage school. He said, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to work on you to do my case study. And that was really, I was always interested in muscles and movement and, and really trying to figure out why I was injured, which I think is a lot of people's story. So I, I remember just sitting in detention and in-school suspension a lot. And I'd be reading at that time Runner's World and Men's Fitness and looking at muscles and trying to figure out why I was injured. But I, you know, didn't really have anything that was, you know, looking back on it now, I didn't understand things like I do now. So I was just trying different things. Long story short, I was always interested in that. So I go from massage school. Well, so I'm going to the gym. I get going into the gym, getting stronger. The massage part really helped me. And then I knew when I was in massage school that I wanted to get into personal training. So I get out of school, I'm doing personal training and working as a massage therapist. And I had been into Tony Robbins many years earlier. And, and one of the things he teaches you is, you know, model the people that you most see yourself being like, for lack of a better term. 
And so I start going to these fitness conferences with a girl that I started dating at this gym that I was working at. So I'm doing massage at this gym. I have an office there. I'm doing like real basic personal training at that point. We start going to fitness conferences and I knew right away, like, okay, I want to figure out who the biggest players are in this field of, you know, personal training at this time. So this is like 1995, 1996. So the first time I listened to this one guy uh, who ended up being my mentor, uh, you know, unofficially, he sounded like, I just wasn't ready to hear what he had to say. And I think if you were to talk to him, he was saying it, he would say, you know, he was not the best presenter at that time. He was a little rough around the edges, a little prickly, you know, and ultimately I hurt myself doing some stretching stuff that I had learned at a fitness conference. And then I start to question what I'm doing. And then he comes up on my itinerary, maybe a year later, year and a half later, whatever it was, I'm in another fitness conference. So I'm like, oh, I'll give him a shot again. Now I hear him a second time and I'm hearing it through or I'm seeing it through a different lens because I had been injured via exercise, uh, via stretching specifically. But anyway, uh, it was like, wow, this, make, this guy makes so much sense. He was a physical therapist. His name is Tom Purvis. And to put a name to the face, he was the pitch man for Bowflex for many years. Uh, he was the physical therapist on those infomercials. And you know, he's really, I think, a genius. He teaches critical thinking, and he just has a whole different way of looking at everything. And that was huge, especially in my 20s, because it really helped me to think differently, uh, critically. And that's, that's how I ended up teaching, actually, was, you know, via critical thinking. And that ended up working out really well for me. Well, let me, um, let me, let me pause and ask a couple questions. So one, when you said you weren't ready to hear it the first time, what was it that you weren't ready to hear? You know, it's so long, it's so long ago now, but I think that he, you know, he was talking about, you know, the joints a lot. So if you're doing stuff in the gym, we think a lot about muscles, but we don't think about joints. And then more specifically, how are you applying force to those muscles impacts the joint. And that was in the early stages of his, you know, training. And then he, of course, evolved like everybody does. But I wasn't necessarily thinking about, you know, I always I always understood, OK, you want to control the eccentric phase, you know, the negative uh, for the, you know, gym science kind of thing would be the negative. But that's, a, you know, the muscles eccentrically lengthening and then you shorten. But I always knew to control both ends of the movement. But I wasn't thinking about the joint. I definitely wasn't thinking about how you apply force to muscles. And that that makes a world of difference. And he had a background of, you know, having, you know done bodybuilding for years and hurt himself you know he had hurt himself and started you know as a physical therapist started to look at these things differently and i always look at it like and this has happened many times in my career but you know when the student is ready the teacher will appear and i feel like that's the opposite too having taught for many years i taught kinesiology which i guess i didn't mention but having taught kinesiology uh, many times i think it's the opposite too where when the teacher is ready the student will appear. Does that make sense? It does. Well, I just like how you've highlighted something uh, in the fitness world that people don't think about that a lot of people get into certain things because of their own personal problems that they're trying to solve. And then they deal with that. Um, it's similar to most therapists who get into therapy because they're trying to fix themselves. And then they go into being therapists. Sometimes they really need to do more of the former before they can do the latter. 
Um, the And the thing about muscles and joints is very interesting because certainly when most people think about exercising, they just think about moving the weight or if you're doing body weight stuff, just moving the body and aren't paying attention to what you said, which um, is how these things actually interact in the right way. It's really easy to put strain on the joints. Look, I talk about this with arch support. When people say, well, I need arch support. I go, well, what you're doing is when your foot is hitting the ground flat, your arch isn't engaged and you're trying to engage your arch when it's in a weak position to start with. Then you put an arch support and you can't do it at all anyway, or you have a stiff shoe and you're trying to move your foot isometrically because it can't actually move. All of these put strain on the ligaments, the tendons and the joints. And people are like, oh, but they don't think about it in part because they've been sold a bill of goods about orthotics, for example. And we can dive into that later if if you like. But the um, there was one other thing that you said that um, was really interesting to me. Oh man, it just flew right out of my brain. Uh, well, since I can't think of it, let's back up to the thing I teased this with. So you and I started chatting and we talked about this whole phenomenon about pronation and orthotics and support and uh, the mythology around that and what people don't understand about that. Do you want to dive into that and we can see where that takes us? Yeah, I think ultimately, uh, you know, talking about the joints and joint forces and in this, in this case with running, you know, we're talking about ground reaction forces. So no matter what you believe, you know, if you believe orthotics are good or whatever it is, you still have physics, right? So, you know, the physics are going to be there no matter what you believe. Right. And that's really important to think about because ground reaction forces include a lot of things, you know, friction for an example. So very often this is kind well, of light. Well, let's, hold on. Let's pause before you do that. Um, say more about what ground reaction forces are are in this context for people who don't know that term? Yeah. So basically when the foot comes into the ground, we can get into specifics about the foot, but when the foot comes into the ground, the ground is pushing back at the foot. So if you land on your heel, and I know you know this, Stephen, uh, you land on, you know, towards the outside of the calcaneus or heel, and then the ground is what drives the heel, right? So it drives it into what's called eversion, so uh, do you want to give your pronation supination example before I go on? You can do that too. Okay. Well, here, I'll, do, I'll, I'll explain the pronation supination thing. So I'll, we'll start with supination. So when your foot is approaching the ground, if you're relaxed, you're going to touch the ground on the outside of your foot first. And this is that position where your foot is angled so the outside is down is supination. And whether you land on your heel or your midfoot or the ball of your foot, same thing. If your foot is angled in that way, that's supination. And then your foot's going to hit the ground fully and it'll be flat. And as you're coming off the ground, you tend to roll onto the inside slightly. And if you're thinking about the inside of your foot being down, that's pronation. And what most people um, have come to believe is that pronation is bad. And um, because, frankly, shoe companies realize they could sell that story because it's one of those things that everybody does. It's a natural part of the gait cycle. But if you can pathologize a natural thing, then suddenly you have a unique selling proposition and you can convince people that they're wrong and broken. And then you can sell stuff to them because you're a lying sack of crap. Is that a good yeah. explanation? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think to add to that, you know, before the heel touches down, I think it's an important piece that a lot of people don't talk about is that the foot is actually turned. So imagine you pull the top of your foot towards your shin. So that's called dorsiflexion. Yep. So if you're sitting there right now, you pull the top of your foot towards your shin and all you have on the floor is your heel. Now imagine turning your foot in. And when you turn your foot in, your lower leg follows your foot, right? So that's like you're preparing the landing gear 
before the heel touches down. Right. And you'll see that in some of the running magazines, like, you know, they'll capture an image with the foot right before it strikes the ground. So that's really important because it's how, how well are you preparing the landing gear for the landing, right? And so the heel touches down and we're going to touch more to the outside of the heel. The ground drives the heel. And then ultimately you have to go to your big toe. Right. Right. Now I remember many years ago, I was on the, uh, you probably remember this, the run girl foot, uh, the run barefoot girl podcast. And I remember hearing an interview with you, not on that podcast, but on another podcast from a long time ago. And this, I love this about you because you had just started your company at that time. And I remember hearing you say, and, and she was asking you about mechanics. Now, this was not the Run Girlfoot. This was not the Run Barefoot Girl podcast. It was a different podcast around barefoot running at that time. I think the lady was out of Canada, if I remember correctly. And you were, it was the very beginning of the podcast. And you talked about landing very lightly on the outside of the forefoot or front foot. And then you go to the big toe. And she was challenging a little bit on that. And I, mean, I was like, yeah, he's absolutely right about that. So I was so, I, w- I mean, I knew that, but I was super impressed that somebody who had started a, a running shoe company actually understood how the foot comes into the ground. Cause I had never, I had never heard that before from anybody who had started a running shoe company. So I was like, man, I like this guy. And I also recognized <laughs> that, I also recognized that you understood marketing and I, I really appreciated that too. Or let me, I, not only did you understand marketing, but you were good at marketing, but I love that. I love that part of it. You're whether you land on the front foot or the rear foot, meaning the heel, you're going to touch down on the outside of that front foot. And then you're going to the big toe, but once the heel touches down, it's going to be the same thing, right? The same motion is going to occur, right? Right. But at a different time. Right. And that's really the important thing because either way, like, so you're, I'm going to go back for a second because I think this is really important. I don't know if you thought about it, but if you touch down on the outside of the front foot and you go to the big toe, what is the ground going to do to the front foot? Well, the same thing that's doing no matter where it hits, it's always pushing back in the place where that's you're right. Yeah, that's right. So what would you call that? Uh, and Hey, we're back to ground reaction forces. Yeah, because ultimately, if you're touching down on the outside, your foot, your big toe, imagine the front foot, you're going in, right? So like to use the running shoe store analogy, you're going in, right? So the big toe, right, comes into the ground, which is pronation. So it's pronation of the front foot, right, or eversion of the front foot. And then ultimately, the ground's pushing back, Right. right, which is throwing the foot in the opposite direction. And then the heel goes in the same direction it would if you touched down on the heel. You know, one of the things that I think that's so interesting about when you're, if you're landing on your heel and pronation is that, and the, well, I'll say two things. One, it's almost inevitable because your heel is a ball. Balls are unstable. And so there's just no way to avoid it basically, but more, you just don't have, if you think about landing on your, on the ball of your foot or your forefoot, when you, land in, on the outside edge of your foot and you come in, you have this wide structure that's actually designed to address that, to handle that. And in fact, if you're landing on your forefoot, it's really hard to pronate because you've already engaged the arch. You've already engaged the ankle. Like you said, you've already basically prepared the landing gear to handle that force the way it's designed to handle that force. With that's the, right. 
proper alignment of the the um, bones and ligaments and muscles as well. And so it's this misunderstood idea. But of course, if you're landing on your heel, you, there's just no way around it. And I'm remembering, I was in the lab with Dr. Bill Sands when he was uh, out here in Colorado. He used to be the head of biomechanics for the U.S. Olympic Committee. And he would say pronation is not an issue. Hyperpronation, having it happen so fast you can't control anything, is an issue. And not only does that happen when you land on your heel, but it happens even more. I've got I'm holding up a shoe. If you have a shoe with a flared sole, so yes. the part that hits the ground first is not where your heel would hit the ground, but a half an inch to an inch further out, which yeah. if you think about using a wrench, you can basically move more with a wrench than you can with your hand because for physics people, because you've increased the moment arm, gives you more leverage. But the flip side is true as well. In this case, that allows that having that flared sole creates that hyper that fast movement uh, into pronation, which you can't control. So the shoe itself is a problem in multiple ways, when especially if you're landing your heel. But same thing on the forefoot. If you have a flared sole on the forefoot, same thing creates hyperpronation, which is just again, you just don't have the time to correct for what it does. And no amount of foam is going to do it because you're hitting the ground with so much force. There's no foam that can stand up to that force. Yeah. And I think what I was trying to get to too is, you know, like looking at a minimal shoe, when I talk to patients, I'll show them what a shoe should look like when they go out. So I have a lot of clients, patients that have zero shoes. There, there are other shoes that I recommend. A lot of clients do have zero shoes though. But long story short is I could pick up a shoe. Let's say they, they walk in with their zero shoes and I will twist the front of the shoe and the back of the shoe in opposite directions. Right. Because that's what the foot's doing when it's on the ground. Right. So we can show it like from a marketing standpoint that we can roll it up in a ball, but really we want any shoe to twist where I could hold the front and the back and twist it in opposite directions. Now, a lot of shoes won't do that. Right. right? But can we, if we're, if we're walking around in our casual wear, say it's a female walking around in their casual wear and they're wearing zero shoes or some, whatever minimal barefoot shoe it is, they're often looking for other shoes that they can wear. So like you have sandals, right? We would want something that would be on the back of the foot, right? A strap, whatever it is. That's where I think Anya's doing a great job, actually. I don't know if I said her name right, but Anya, Anya, Anya. you know, she's doing a great job because she's helping me tremendously because I have females all the time. Ask me, you know, what are some other options? Because once you start going barefoot or, barefoot shoes, minimal shoes. It's yeah. hard to go back. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing it for 12 years and I can't wear anything else nor what I want to, um, you know, but, but that's really the big thing. And then of course, podiatrists say the opposite. They'll show you the stiffest shoe you could ever possibly imagine, which makes no sense based on going back to function. Right. So you always have to go back to the mechanics and we're wearing these shoes for a, tr- a tremendous amount of reasons don't allow the foot to function the way the foot was designed to function, right? Here's a weird one for you. If you think about uh, runners who are running, especially like the 200 meters or the 400 meters, where they're taking a turn as fast as they can. Yeah. The foot has to do something there that most humans never have to experience, where it's actually, you know, this is impossible to describe, where basically it gets a little banana shaped. So the forefoot's on the ground, and when the heel is coming down, it's basically getting this sort of banana shape. And there's no running shoe currently that accommodates that. And so yeah. that creates a whole bunch of craziness for people. And we're and and when I was started uh, training as a sprinter again, 
about running the 200, what they have you do instead is try to teach you to put your foot in a really weird angle because the shoe can't accommodate what your foot is trying to do naturally. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting, I think I heard you mention that on one of, one of your episodes. Oh man. That is an interesting That thing. would be surprising. Cause I don't think I did, but I don't remember what I had for breakfast. So it's entirely possible. So well, to- it might not be that exact thing. There was pieces of that, but I definitely remember you talking about there's turns. You, know, you have to turn. Well, what I normally talk know. about is how I'm a hundred meter guy. So I don't take turns because I don't have a, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I'd get, I get lost if I try to take a turn, but you know, if somebody comes to you and says, Hey, I pronate because they got quote diagnosed at a shoe store. How do you respond to them? You know, it's really, at this point, having done this for as long as I have, it's really difficult not to smile or maybe even laugh a little bit. You know, I mean, I, that might just be my nature too. But, but, but you, you know, you get so tired of saying the opposite of pretty much every practitioner that's out there, you know, I mean, I just kind of keep it like a little light. And uh, if they haven't met me initially, they don't necessarily know my personality, but you know, it, it ends up working out like nobody's offended or anything, but I, I just kind of laugh because it's like, that makes no sense. So recently, um, a woman came in and she had orthotics and she had been to the podiatrist and she mentioned her podiatrist like three times. And I said, well, so I listened to her, you know, listened to her the whole thing. And then as she's talking, I'm trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to take this woman from the way she's thinking to the way I want her to think, which makes her more anti-fragile? Because really, she was here because a friend had referred her. So that's always a good thing. And she was tired of going to massage therapists uh, every week and, you know, spending the money there. I think she had gone to a chiropractor for a little while and then she did the orthotics route. So I said, you know, I just came right out and said, well, just so you know, and I can back this up. So I'm confident in saying it, but just so you know, anything that a podiatrist is talking about as far as the foot goes is pseudoscience because here's how <laughs> I mean, that's true. I mean, and, and, and I, I, I don't know, I'm probably not legally supposed to say that, but if you give me, my, if you, if you look at my background, I mean, I can back it up. So I'm going to say it because it's the truth. And so I literally, that's what I said to her. I said, you know, she's an, she was actually an attorney, which is funny. You know, just so you know, everything your podiatrist is telling you is pseudoscience. And I can, you know, I can show you that. And she was, so then right away, she's like, you know what? I'm totally open to whatever you have to say. My, my father was a scientist. So I'm totally, I'm in it, man. I'm in it. Whatever you have to tell me, because she had gone so far into onto the fragile side of the spectrum, right? That she was willing to take in anything that would bring her to the other side. And of course it's worked out very well for her. That's an interesting point. Uh, We do hear from people who by the time they come to minimalist footwear, or natural movement is because they've tried all these things. They've spent all this money and it hasn't worked, but, um, and they're just looking for something and they've heard from other people that this has been beneficial. But I'm curious when you refer to um, podiatric pseudoscience, can you give me an example? Well, everything. Um, I mean, mean, seriously, I mean, I'll give you specifics, but it's just crazy that, you know, someone goes to school and what is it? Two, four years. I don't even know. And everything is wrong. I mean, they don't even know how the foot functions. But then I think another side of an easier way to say it is they only focus on the foot, right? That's all they're licensed to focus on. Mm. But you can't change what the foot does, right? You can't change what the foot does mechanically in an abnormal way without changing what the knee does. 
And that's huge because we went, you know, going back to joints, and I know this has come up with the knee joint, with the uh, Harvard Gate Lab woman. Mm-hmm. Her name is Casey oh, Kerrigan, yeah. I think, Dr. Casey oh. Kerrigan. Oh, and Casey was I, there, yeah. Yeah, I listened to that episode, and she's talking about osteoarthritis of the knee, specifically, yeah. I think she was saying the medial side of the knee, and we can, might get into that a little bit. But you can't change what the foot does without changing what the knee does. That's a mechanical thing. And so... I'm going to, I'm going to lay it out like this. Well, wait, I want to back it up because there's another part where not only can't change what's happening at the knee, but also at the hip. And the flip side is you can change what's happening at the hip and that will affect what the foot is doing. That's right. So if you're only paying attention to the foot, you might miss that and make some sort of intervention that's missing the point. Now, I do want to say I, I have met many podiatrists who actually understand this shit because they have, like you, questioned it and started to look and found things that they weren't taught. Um, yeah. I asked, I asked a podiatrist recently on the podcast what they learned about shoes, and his answer was essentially nothing. Like they had one session, which was, here's the right shoe to fit the orthotic you're going to prescribe to people. Yeah, so let me rephrase that, because when I say these things, I'm talking about most, and when I consider most, I'm considering 51%. But I do know, you know, I right? I mean, where, when, when do you draw that line, right? Yeah. But I mean, it's a lot more than I'm, I'm being extremely generous saying 51%. Yeah. I mean, that's really the truth. I think there's 12,000 podiatry members in the, you know, podiatry, whatever it is, deal where they probably pay something and they share information and go to conferences and stuff. Well, I think it's 12,000 because it recently came up in an article. And I would imagine most of those 12,000 are selling orthotics on an everyday basis. And how couldn't they sell orthotics on an everyday basis? Because that's their bread and butter, right? Right. Like a chiropractor's bread and butter is adjustments in most cases. Again, most cases being 51%. Uh, And I think I'm being generous when I say 51% because I think it's a lot more a lot more chiropractors than 51% are doing adjustments every day, which I also think is pseudoscience and a placebo. And we could talk about that if you want. But then going back to podiatry, okay, going back to podiatry, I do know that there are podiatrists. There's a few out there, right? And I only know of maybe a handful, you might know more, but that actually do understand these things. I'm going to, well, maybe we'll say be generous and say 10. But I think I've maybe heard of five, okay? And so that's like ninety. You know, that's a lot of people. Wait, I could introduce. I could introduce you to five like immediately. There may okay. be overlap. We may have a little Venn diagram thing going on. But suffice it to say, um, I'll, without even blinking, I could do ten. Now that doesn't mean that that's that the only ten by any stretch. We're hearing. I mean, I'm hearing from more and more people who are. What's often happening is somebody's walking into the office of a podiatrist sometimes in a pair of zero shoes, and then that starts a conversation. Usually the podiatrist is antithetical to, you know, the points that that person is making um, or, or non-disposed to it. But then at a certain point that, you know, kind of sits in their brain and eventually they start looking at things and they call me and ask me questions. And then my favorite part is they say, well, you know, you don't have a medical background and you don't know anything about footwear design to which I say, well, no, I was only a pre-med from the time I was 10 and decided not to go to medical school. And yeah. I've been, you know, and I've got my other biomechanical autodidactical cred. And yes, I didn't uh, come in knowing footwear, but in 13 years, you know, you'll learn shit. So, um, and in fact, just for the sake of bragging, kind of, um, the thing I'm most proud of, one of the two things I'm most proud of uh, are related. One is that uh, professional footwear designers take my ideas seriously and know that I have valid input, which I was surprised by, but I, I just understand how this stuff works. And the same thing with people who are researching and who are kinesiologists, biomechanists, et cetera, is they, they treat me the same way. And I feel 
pride is not my thing. I just really enjoy that because I like the conversation with smart people who are willing to question things and investigate things and use and use critical thinking, which is a tricky one. I, for the sake of that, it's funny. I got accused on YouTube the other day by a European footwear designer of um, being American and using science to try to make a point, which I thought was one of the funniest things I ever heard. It's like, yeah, because the science backs up real reality and you're just using what people have told you and mythology to back up what you're saying. I'm giving you actual data. And one of one of their responses was, well, if you know, then how come all these big shoe companies, they spend millions of dollars every year in R and D I go, right. Well, that's great. But then how come running injury rates haven't changed since the advent of the modern athletic shoe? It's still 50% of runners, 80% of marathoners getting injured every year. If their R and D was so good, don't you think they would have fixed that by now? And that's when the conversation ended. Yeah, and of course, there's no research to show that, or if there is, there isn't a lot of it. And But that is the bottom line, is just thinking, again, critical thinking. If yeah. all these things you say are working or working, then why are we spending over $100 billion on back pain and things like that, right? Because right. even though you might not be talking about back pain, your shoe makes an impact on back pain. You Absolutely. know, I mean, well, and, you well, know. Then- well, and the other one that I say about when doctors are saying something about this not being real, I said, you know, the people who try minimalist footwear, natural movement, who have a good experience, don't make an appointment to come see you, right? You're only hearing from people who have problems. And then I say, and when they say they have foot, hip, ankle, knee, whatever problems they claim to have as a result of wearing minimalist shoes, do you ask them or do you get video of them running? or walking, yeah. whatever it is they're doing. And you know how to analyze that video. And have you asked them what their training protocol was and how they made the transition? And I've literally never had one doctor say yes to any of those three questions. And I go, that's the important part. They go, oh, well, you're saying that anyone has a problem if they're running barefoot, it's because of a form problem. And I go, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, story. yeah. And I think the other way I would say that is they have no idea what muscles you're doing. They well, don't know which muscles are tight. They don't know which muscles are weak. And when I say weak, I mean neurologically weak first, and then right. we look at the physiological part. But you know that. I mean, they'll still give somebody a calf stretch for plantar fasciitis, and uh, you know they've been doing that for how many years? And yeah. uh, there's a lot. There's more than one muscle there, more than two muscles back there that cross that posterior axis uh, or go posterior to that medial lateral axis at the ankle. Uh, not to mention the subtalar joint. And um, they don't know which muscles are tight and which muscles are weak. And a lot of times it's interesting. The gastrocnemius, uh, which if nobody's familiar with that, is a muscle you see, you know, stands out more when somebody has heels on. Oh, well, well, sorry. Uh, the, sorry for right? humans, for humans, a.k.a. your calf. Yeah, yeah, your calf, right? But ultimately that muscle, a lot of times is it can present as tight, which tight is a, a sensation but it's actually not functioning as well as it could, mm. or it's not functioning to the best of its ability. And that's not the only muscle that will present that way, but it is one muscle. And it's a very unique muscle because even though we, we say gastrocnemius, it has two heads. Right. And those two heads are responsible for very different things. I've, you know? I've, I've pointed out, um, and I've shown this with people who say they, that their doctor has told them they have plantar fasciitis, and I can kind of spot it from a mile away and go, yeah, can I stick my thumb in your calf in this one spot? And they go, all right. And of course, it's very tender. And after I work that out a little bit, I go, how's your plantar fasciitis when you walk around now? They go, wow, it's like 90% better. I go, yeah. So yeah, you yeah. just have tight calves that are pulling and giving those same symptoms, but it's not what they've told you. Yeah, and I, I I originally was on the podiatry arena. Uh, what do they call that? Podiatry 
podiatry arena, I think they call it, which is their online forum. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah. I didn't. I had I had paid attention to it a little bit because it would come up for alerts. Like I get alerts on different topics every day, like orthotics or iliotibia band or whatever it is. Anyway, I I was familiar with the podiatry arena, so I would. Uh, you know, listen, I would read what they were saying, blah, blah, blah. and then all of a sudden I was on there and they were talking about an article I wrote about plantar fasciitis and the title of the article, I don't know the exact title, it was something about plantar fasciitis has little to do with your foot. And it ended up being liked and shared like 21,000 times. And so that ended up in the podiatry arena and they were, they were really not happy about it. And then I wrote the article on orthotics, which also took off. Uh, and they well, also weren't happy about that, as you might imagine. Well, what um, what you write about orthotics? Oh, geez, it's it's long. I mean, it. I recently updated because I had originally written that in 2016, and I wanted to go back for the longest time and update it. And I so I finally did uh, a couple of months ago. And you know, I I don't think there's anything good that comes out of putting orthotics in your shoes. And I recently, going back to something you said, because I have my online presence too, and I have people that will challenge me here and there too, right? So I was answering a question the other day on Quora, and it, it only partly had to do with orthotics. But the question was something like, if you have really good orthotics, does it matter if you put them in a cheap shoe <laughs> or something to that effect, right? And so then I'm like, okay, hmm, what are what are really good orthotics? Exactly. And then you know what I mean. I know what a cheap shoe is. So I kind of went, <laughs> you know, I went. I know I went into. I mean, that could be a lot. That could be wide ranging, right? But I but I then went into, you know, if you do put orthotics in a in a cheap shoe, what's going to happen? The cushioning is going to break down really fast. You're going to end up on the outside of your foot. Blah blah blah. So I go through all this stuff, and then I even gave the opposite. And then I might have even gone into, I eventually went into, if you put orthotics in a barefoot shoe, you're going to end up with the majority of the weight in your, the outside of your foot, just because they're driving, your orthotics are driving your foot to the outside of your foot. Like you're, you're right. basically forced to supinate, right? Which means now you can't pronate. And so now you're just supinating your way forward, which is not a good way to go forward. It's not an efficient way to go forward, right? But, but long story short is so then so a physio from the UK you know, chimes in and says, you know, I found orthotics to be helpful for me and helpful for many patients throughout the years. That's something to that effect. So then I give more science, you know, and more, and then he comes in again with something and I get more science. And then at the end, he says, you know, you really should get more higher education, uh, maybe study kinesiology. So I said, well, so I just said, I taught kinesiology for 15 years and I actually wrote the forward to a kinesiology textbook. And then it was like crickets from there, you know, <laughs> but I mean, seriously, like it, a lot of this stuff, and I'm sure you can relate, I can bring the science, but I could also bring the common sense. Right. And, and, and then you get into sunk cost fallacy and the self-serving bias, confirmation bias. We definitely see that where yeah. they'll cherry pick little things that, you know, oh, well, there's this and, and don't even stand up to research, actually. Well, but well, anyway, go on. But I mean, it, it's undeniable that for well, I've got an article on our site. Um, this was it was one of my it's one of my favorite science writers for two reasons. One, she's a brilliant science writer, and two, I love her name, which is Gina Colada. Oh yes, sure, sure. Gina writes for the Times and has written a number of awesome books. And she, sure. she did some research on orthotics and basically came to the conclusion they don't really do anything. No one knows what, if anything, they do. They're unreliable, and there's no difference between getting 
a $1,000 custom-made orthotic and a $25 Dr. Scholl's insole. But if you have, you know, in the same way, if you've injured some muscle, ligament, tendon, or joint, and you immobilize it so that it can not be under strain, that can be beneficial. But then you want to get out of that as quickly as you can and start using your body again, building up strength, building up flexibility as necessary. Because if you just keep it immobilized, it's just, it's a vicious cycle that gets progressively worse and worse and worse. And, you know, not using something feels good because it's relaxing, but watch what happens when astronauts come back from space where they were totally relaxed and it takes them a while till they can walk again. Yeah. And if you think about plantar fasciitis, I mean, most people would say that their calf is tight, right? So now yeah. a podiatrist gives them the stretches, which don't do much. And then, then they put them in orthotics, right? Yeah. And so, so now they're in orthotics, but the subtalar joint can't move properly. Mm. And so the more your subtalar joint can move, going back again, just eversion, imagine that the heel is supposed to go out, right? And the foot ultimately rolls in, but it can't, the heel can't go out and the, the foot can't roll in. And that determines what your ankle does, right? That determines how much flexion you have at your ankle, right? So the opposite side of that, say you have no orthotics, stretching the calf doesn't make a big difference in the bigger picture because mm. like basically you're going to have to keep stretching your calf because you're not getting to the root cause. It's like a bandaid. But basically, if you don't have stability of your subtalar joint, your ankle's never going to flex more. Can you describe, can, yes, it makes sense to me. Can you describe uh, the subtalar joint for people who don't have that physiology background? Yeah, absolutely. So if you imagine the heel going out, so imagine like it rolling, we'll say it's going to roll in. And then on top of that, you have a bone, it's called the talus. And so that forms the subtalar joint. And that talus, when the heel, the calcaneus goes out or rolls in, that sets up a situation where the tail is sitting on top can actually slide down and in. It just basically, there's a little shelf there and it can then slide down and in. Now that tail is that sits on top of the heel. And I have a, I have a foot here. Right? Okay. You have your, I have the same one. I just beat you too. I have the same one. I, okay. Yeah. So yeah. ultimately that heel goes, let's do, let's do eversion. Okay. So let's show it from the back though. Uh, Steven, I think. So then the heel goes, so it's going from in to out. So well, it's going to go so, out. So there's the out. And then we're rolling in. Yeah, you're rolling in. And then that talus is going to go down and in. And the tibia, right, is going to follow the talus. Yeah. Right. It's going to it's going to fall the talus down and in. And so it's important to recognize that that calf, some of those calf muscles are attaching to the tibia or the fibula. But ultimately... If that rear foot, so the subtalar joint and the ankle joint, can't move properly, that's going to impact what the calf can do. Meaning that if, if you block it with arch support, so we'll say an orthotic, now that subtalar joint can't yeah, move, which means, yeah, which means now you have an ankle, which is a pure hinge. It's like if you go over to the door and you open and close the door, it's only going to move in that plane, right? So your, your ankle joint is a pure hinge. It only moves in that one plane, which is the sagittal plane. So if you change motion of the joint that's closest to the heel, which is the subtalar joint, or the joint that's, we'll say the joint that's closest to the ground, which is the subtalar joint, that's going to change what happens with the joint above, which is right. the ankle joint. 
And so that's where stretching the calf, it's really not doing what people think it's doing, whether it's plantar fasciitis or anything, because you're never going to get more motion of that ankle until you have stability at the joint below, which is a subtalar joint. Now that's going much further into it than most people do, but that's really the truth. Yeah. I mean, that's the truth of stretching. I mean, we can, we can say that stretching helps. We can stay, say that stretching works. Two words that I hear a lot in the office. So when I hear stretching helped, or I hear stretching worked, or I hear a chiropractic adjustment helped, and a chiropractic adjustment uh, worked, what did I reverse those? You get it, helped or worked. I, I pay attention to those words, helped or worked. Right away, I'm thinking, okay, how is that possible? You know what I mean? Because I don't see that happening. And so then we might have that conversation down the road that let's stop stretching because it's going to undo what I do. Does right. that make sense? It yeah. does. You know, I, I, it's funny having having a foot skeleton to play with. It, it's really interesting because we just don't really appreciate how many bones and joints there are and what they do. And if you just even look at it for just a few minutes, it seems some things just become kind of obvious about what should or shouldn't move and what it should do. I mean, I have to tell you one of my favorite ones is I didn't was not aware that um, your big toe, your first ray, that there's this joint right here that cracks yeah. just like your fingers can crack your knuckles in your hand. And the first time someone cracked that joint because it was a little over stiff, I thought they broke my foot. And uh, but then it was like, oh, my God, it's just way more flexible. It was just all tight. And I didn't know it. And I did because I didn't know that was possible. And then you look at, you know, this foot skeleton and you just see all these places where there are little things that could go right or wrong. Um, and like you're saying, if you don't understand some of this and it's not like everybody has to understand the anatomy of the foot. But if you absolutely have, but if you don't have some familiarity, it's really easy to be misled by someone who's going to say you need an orthotic, you hope you pronate, and that's a problem, even though there's no evidence that there's any relationship between pronation and any injury whatsoever. And, you know, same thing about the heel. It's like, yeah, when you see that it's a ball and you're landing on your heel, that doesn't take any rocket science to know balls are unstable. And it's just fascinating. And I, I wish people... I wish people knew more physics. I wish people knew more anatomy because it would just save them so much time, effort, and money. Absolutely. And I see that all the time. Most of the people that come to see me have done all sorts of things, orthotics, chiropractic, physical therapy. They, you know, they've spent thousands of dollars a lot of times, and now they're going to start paying out of pocket, you know, coming to see me. That basically is my, you know, my niche market. But, but the foot is a fascinating thing. It's, it's a big part of my practice. I love the foot. I'm sure you've heard people say that the foot is not designed well, and, and that is not true. The foot is designed perfectly. It's a, it's a beautiful, I mean, it's, it's, there's, the foot is just so amazing when you think about how it moves and how it impact, you know, how it interacts with the ground and all the things that it's supposed to do. But shoes have taken away the foot's ability to do what it's supposed to do. Right. And then shoes have taken away the foot's ability to do what the knee is supposed to do. And so a lot of people, with even though they don't realize it because they don't have pain, are walking around with weak feet. Yeah. So that's where you have to start. I mean, that's really where you have to start. Now, that's probably not realistic at this point, but hopefully with what you're doing and what other people are doing, we're going in a direction where maybe people will start to look we'll at get that. that. Well, I mean, in the bigger picture. Well, right? I'll, tell, I'll tell you something. I'm going to preview something that you'll get a kick out of. So 
there's two really interesting studies. Study number one is from Dr. Isabel Sacco in Brazil, where she took runners in regular shoes and had one half of that group, it was, I think, over 200 people, and had half of them do an eight-week foot strengthening program, and then tracked them over the course of a year. And over the course of the year, the people who did the foot strengthening program had 250% fewer injuries than the ones who didn't do the foot strengthening program. Eight-week intervention, one year's worth of value. Now, obviously, if you'd kept doing more strengthening, might have been even better, but it was literally eight-week intervention. Well, here's the second study from Dr. Sarah Ridge showing that walking in minimalist shoes builds foot strength as much as doing that foot exercise program. So the foot exercise program is in the middle of this equation. Now, there's not a study that shows that if you just walk in minimalist footwear, then you will get the foot strength that will allow you to have that 250% risk reduction of injury. But do the math. It's the same exercise program in the middle of the equation. So what I'm starting to do, and I've just compiled that into an ebook that we're going to start promoting to runners to say, you don't have to run in these shoes. Don't run in these shoes. Wear minimalist footwear when you're not running to build that strength that seems to be connected to reducing your risk of being injured. Now, I will also confess that it's a bit of a bait and switch because of course, once they start wearing minimalist footwear, just like you said, once you get used to it, you can't go back. One day, everyone's going to put on their running shoes and feel like they're going to fall on their face and bemoan that they can't feel the ground and get that feedback that they need. So that's my evil plan. But it's an evil plan based on, I mean, I call it the dumbest science ever done because we have to prove use it or lose it. We have to prove strength is better than weak or strong is better than yeah. weak, which seems absurd. Yeah. But it, absolutely. But that's where we are right now. Well, I think you can go as far as to say, like a podiatrist might say to somebody who has plantar fasciitis, you know, your heel is dropping, your navicular, oh, excuse me, your navicular is dropping, your foot is weak, whatever the, whatever it is they're using that day, right? Depending on the podiatrist. And then, and then they'll say, oh, and we have these orthotics for $500 that we can put in your shoes. And it's like, if you're a thinking person, it's like, okay, he just told me my feet were weak, right? but now he wants to, he wants to sell me $500. Uh, you know, which are basically pebbles, you know, they're driving, they're driving my foot and they're, my feet aren't going to get weak and my feet aren't going to get stronger. You know what I mean? That's like, it just yeah. doesn't make any sense. It doesn't add up. And it's definitely throwing you more towards the fragility side of the spectrum yeah. to the point. I'm sure you've seen this and it's very sad. People get to the point. I hear this all the time. I get emails all the time from people because of that orthotics article that they can no longer walk around their house it's, without orthotics. It was the most amazing conversation I ever had. This was maybe eight years ago. And I'm meeting with a guy in, in Boulder who's like one of the richest guys in town, big deal investor. And he says, you know, even if I wanted to, and if I invest in your company, I couldn't wear your shoes because I've had plantar fasciitis for 20 years. And I said, well, first of all, you can't have an inflammation for 20 years. So something else is going on. Then he says, well, you know, it went away for about a year and a half um, out of nowhere. I said, so that proves that it wasn't plantar fasciitis because things like that just don't magically go away and then magically come back. So yeah. I can tell you what you actually have is tight, habitually tight calves, chronically tight calves that for whatever reason, it went, you know, they loosened up for a year. doesn't matter. But I said, well, let me ask you a question. How are you walking barefoot? And he goes, oh, I can't walk barefoot in my house. I have hardwood floors. And I said, <laughs> do you think that's normal? Do you think that, you know, you're somehow some horrible, fragile little snowflake where it's impossible for you to walk across your floor I mean, does that seem right to you? And he was a little dumbstruck. And I said, dude, first of all, just because I look like this doesn't mean I don't know more than your doctor. Because all my yeah. friends who became doctors didn't score as high on those tests as I did. Just FYI. Yeah. 
But more yeah. importantly, I can give you some foot exercises that if you just did them while you're watching TV, you could build up enough strength to walk around barefoot in your house. And I can give you some extra exercises after that, where if you wanted to, you could probably be running a 5K barefoot. And I'm not suggesting you do it. I'm just saying you could. Yeah, sure. You could run a 5K sure. barefoot if you wanted to in about six months. And he just looked at me like I was insane because he had spent all this money with doctors who told him that he was a fragile little snowflake that you know needed to have. And I asked him, how much are your orthotics? He goes, 1500 bucks a year. Oh, geez. Yeah, that's a lot. I haven't heard fifteen hundred dollars, but that's for one pair. You, you forgot this guy's super rich. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. I forgot that part. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is sad. I mean, I I often one of the things I tell people regularly, and they just think this is the biggest thing, and in some ways it is. Is okay. I want you to walk around in your house barefoot, but if you have wood floors, don't walk around in your house with socks on. And oh, yeah. you know, it's very different. It's like walking on ice. So yeah. your brain recognizes okay, I have to shorten the stride. I'm not getting friction, which is part of ground reaction forces is having that friction. And so then the brain's not recognizing that things can move at the right time, even though they don't have any orthotics or any overly supportive shoes on, it's not great to walk around at wood floors with socks on. It's very interesting. You say that there was some research uh, with elderly people. I, I wish I remember where I read it about injury rates if they got out of shoes and the highest injury rate was people in socks Mm. and it didn't matter if they had hardwood floors or carpeting it just makes it so that it is it is changing the feedback that you're getting it is changing the way you move the ground it is changing the coefficient of friction and you might be slipping more as a result and uh, but no one considered that and which struck me as utterly mind-blowing but again we we just see people who look I, i can't i can't fault people for not thinking about this stuff clearly, if for no other reason, then as humans, we're wired to look for authority figures and believe what they say, just like chimps <laughs> and, yeah. Um, and yeah. the other primates. So, you know, and we want simple answers. Unfortunately, you know, the simple answer isn't as sexy. The simple answer is harder to sell because it doesn't involve buying something usually. And we've just been trained for so long. To, I mean, my favorite, you walk into a shoe store and you listen to some 23-year-old kid who got was told what to say by the guys trying to sell a particular shoe. And he doesn't know any better. You don't know any better. And you assume, how could you get a job in a running shoe store if you don't know anything about running shoes? It happens all the time. So it's, you know, again, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm mad at the industry, frankly, just for the sake of venting for a second. Because the people in the industry, the guys who run these shoe companies, they know this. They know what they're doing. They know they're misusing physics to sell a story that isn't true. They know that when someone has tested, here's the shoe that we recommend from having you on a treadmill and analyzing your running versus here's a random shoe off the wall. They know it doesn't make a difference, but they keep doing it anyway. And I understand that too. They've got to make a living. This is what they do. Um, that You can't just change course like that in theory, um, but you can, you know, gear up so that you can change course at what looks like a drop of a hat after years of preparation. So, you know, I, I understand it all, but it's infuriating because it's just not good for people. Well, you figure if you're a podiatrist and you went to school for podiatry and you hadn't run bo- read Born to Run or you haven't listened to your podcast, now you've already spent that money and invested that time going to podiatry school. So where do you go from there? There's always a sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, I think that applies to chiropractors a lot. They get into it and they realize, oh, wow, this isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. 
And then there's all sorts of things that happen, but that there's the sunk cost fallacies there and saying, I spent all this money and all this time to be this professional. So I have to do what this professional does. I mean, that's kind of the things that go through people's heads, you know, yeah. so they're looking for everything to sell every, any way they can build insurance, including selling orthotics. Cause you know, chiropractors will talk about alignment and right. that is not, that is not what you want. I mean, you don't want to be aligning your foot and there is, you know, I mean, that, going back to what we were talking about before, the ground doesn't care how you feel about aligning the foot. You know what I mean? Like the physics are still going to be there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I hope this has given people some things to think about slash argue about slash complain about, and then we can, we can dive into it. But, you know, you opened, I don't, did you open by saying that you did massage therapy, which of course is such a small fraction of what you're clearly doing as we've had this conversation that should be obvious to people. So let me just do this simple thing. If people want to engage with you, hopefully to come see you or get some help or read what you've written that would be helpful as well, or anything else that would be useful. Um, or if they want to argue with you, because, you know, what the hell. Back, by the way, really quick, um, the guy who I was arguing with on YouTube, I invited him to be on my podcast. And he said, I have no oh, interest cool. in you or your podcast. Uh, and that, it was really hard for me not to reply scared. So, yeah. <laughs> which would have been fun. But um, so anyway, if people do want to get in touch with you, which I highly recommend, um, how do they do that, Rick? Uh, they can contact me. Uh, well, they can go to engagingmuscles.com, first of all. Uh, and then they'll hold on in slow-mo engaging muscles.com. Yeah. So they can, they can reach out to me or, or go to my site, engaging muscles.com. And there they'll find all of my information like YouTube and Twitter and, and everything. Uh, so I am on Twitter at Rick Merriam. So well, at Rick Merriam. Yeah. Spell that for uh, people. Yeah. So uh, Twitter is at Rick Merriam, R-I-C-K-M-E-R-R-I-A-M. And then I also have a Facebook page, which is Engaging Muscles Massage. But engagingmuscles.com, they can find a lot of, lot of information on me. Brilliant. Well, this has been super fun. And it's not just because we're both preaching to the choir, but it's nice to take a dive in a little deeper than we often get to. And for people who are overwhelmed by the physiology, my apologies-ish. And the ish is, take a gander, this is not rocket science. It's not hard to learn enough to be able to help yourself and even possibly, you know, help others just because you have information that they not may not be getting from a medical professional that they're seeing. Cause you know, the joke is what do you call the guy who graduated last in med school doctor? And, you know, there's a lot of people who admittedly are doing the best they can, but with limited information and possibly a limited skill set, and maybe not the same ability to think, as well as you might be able to. I got. I, sorry, I just had a flashback. When, when I got back into sprinting and I was having a bunch of knee problems, I went to a doctor and after like four sessions of him doing things that had no impact on me, he suggested that maybe I should do some exploratory surgery so he could figure out if there was something else going on, which I knew was a dumb idea. And he said, well, you know, you just have a serious case of patellar tendonitis. I said, dude, that's what I walked in here saying to begin with. I just didn't say it in Latin. At which yeah. point he got very upset with me. Because he thought he could snow me by just naming it instead of giving me some information. So, you know, you want to be, you, you, you want to obviously find medical practitioners that you can rely on, but you also want to know just enough at the, at the very least to be able to, to not just take what they say as gospel. Anyway, that's rant number two for this podcast. Yeah. And the problem is, is people just don't know what they don't know. And that's just such a big thing, right? I mean, I get what you're saying. 
but you have to, you know, the saying is you can have enough, uh, you can have enough knowledge to be dangerous, yeah. which is true. But man, I mean, you have a lot of knowledge, so you can see it from the other side. If you don't know what you don't know, and you're in pain, people get desperate, you know? Well, absolutely. And, but that's a good place to be. I mean, it's a good place to, it, it, I'm not suggesting that I know everything by any stretch of the imagination, but you know you, a lot though. Well, thanks. But you can, but you can <laughs> learn enough to know how to ask a good question. Yeah. Even if you don't know, you can ask a good question. Like what causes that? What else could be a cause? Is there something where I'll tell you something funny. I did something weird the other day and I tweaked what feels like it's my lower back above my hip on the right-hand side. And if I twist like to wipe my butt to be a little graphic, it was painful. It took me a week of noticing that that was where I was feeling pain, but then I felt a little lower and there's something really tight happening lower down kind of in my hip, like, you know, in my, the top of my glute. I hadn't even noticed that before. If I had just gone to a doctor saying I have pain right here, there's a high probability above my hip. There's a high probability they would have never noticed the thing happening with my glute. And I don't know what I did. Yeah, yeah. I just twisted like walking because, you know, I'm yeah. six. Shit sure. happens. So, yeah. No, I understand. I understand. But, you know, yeah. but just to be able to ask questions like, could this be coming from somewhere else? And if so, where? To get the, them to start having to think with you is all it takes is, is some really basic questions, I would think. And you can just start finding those happily from listening to people like you talk about these things. And, uh, um, you know, if you got to realize that doctors are their their job is taking care of the 80 percent of the th people they're going to see who have 80 percent of the problems that are simple to deal with. But if you go in with something that's in that 20 percent and they're not hip to that 20 percent, then you got to you know know how to ask good questions or, or even ask what other question might I ask that might be helpful. That's a crazy yeah. ask. Meta, meta question to ask that'll get them thinking about something different than what there's just there. How can I get in and out of here? Yeah. And I think it's also been shown that people make bad decisions under stress, you know? Oh, yeah. So when, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a real research has shown that. So if you're, you know, if you're coming to a podiatrist as an example with plantar fasciitis and you've been dealing with it and it's really in, you know, it's impacting your life, you know, maybe you have a trip to Spain in three weeks. I see these kinds of things. You know, th you know, there's there's all sorts of things, right? And it's like I got to have an answer. I don't care. I'll pay five hundred dollars. You know, and that, that they don't realize that, man, you impacted your life in so many. You know, you impacted your health in so many ways that you don't know. Because you know, the, there's a podiatrist that will say, hopefully, it's not the five that you mentioned, but they'll say, I think there are a couple that will say this. You know, orthotics are good for a short time, and then you kind of work your way out of them. Yeah. And I don't agree with that. I think you wear them for a day and you're starting to fuck yourself up. I don't know if you're recording anymore, but you know, you really are because your brain is taking all the, like basically you're adding compensation upon compensation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My, my only argument for that would be if you do have something that, I mean, if you're in the article that uh, I have, and I'll, I'll find a way to link to it in the show notes. Um, the article that I have, there are a couple of researchers who mentioned the whole point of an orthotic is to immobilize your foot because you've injured it and need to rest the tissue. That's it. And so there are those circumstances where you've done something where you need to let things rest, but you can let things rest and simultaneously build strength, build, keep that flexibility, et cetera. But so, you know, Irene Davis says it best. If you're in a car accident and someone puts you in a neck brace, you know, it's only temporary. 
and that you don't yeah. wear that all day. You need to do things to get your mobility back and make sure you have strength. But if a doctor said to you, you're going to have to wear that for the rest of your life, you'd sue them for malpractice. But not only yeah. do people, do doctors do that with orthotics for your feet, they do it with orthotics for your ankles, your knees, your hip, your back, your neck, which again yeah. doesn't, doesn't make any sense if you give it the barest amount of thought. But we're not wired to do that, especially because we've been hearing it for 50 years. Feet are fragile. They're not made well. You need orthotics. You need shoes with a lot of cushioning and support. And after you hear it for long enough, it you know you tell a lie long enough, it becomes the truth. Yeah, and I I, I say the same thing. I heard you say that the other day on the podcast. Um, you know, a lot of these things that we ta- are talking about, and a lot of things we haven't talked about, are based on people saying the same thing over and over again, and it eventually becomes the truth, which is scary. Yeah. But I know that especially happens in healthcare. I'm assuming yeah. it help it happens in other fields, probably it, financial, you know. Oh, let's not even talk about politics. So yeah. anyway, well, once again, yeah. this has been a total. Sorry talk. about that. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Fine with me. Um, uh, as you may have gathered, I'll go anywhere in these conversations. Um, so thank you again. And thank you, everybody yeah. else, for jumping in and uh Uh, going on the ride with us. Just another reminder, other than uh, going to Rick's website, engaging, E-N-G, engaging, like getting engaged, engagingmuscles.com and Rick Merriam at Twitter as well. uh, And engaging muscles massage on Facebook. Was that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. 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 Um, You can also go to join the movement, movement.com to get previous episodes, to find out where you can find the podcast pretty much everywhere to find out how to get in touch with us on social media and find out stuff we're doing on other channels. And if you have anyone that you want to recommend for being on the show, or you have a comment or a question, or you want to tell me I have a case of cranial rectal reorientation syndrome, figure it out if you haven't already. Uh, I'm I'm open, you know, I'm, I'm open for the conversation wherever it goes. If someone demonstrates that something I'm thinking is wrong, I could not be happier because then I don't need to waste my time on something that isn't true. And I just want to be helpful. So um, share that as well. And the way you do that, drop me an email, move, M-O-V-E at join the movement, movement.com. But most importantly, until then, and until the next one, go out, have fun and live life feet first. <laughs>